The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only and are not to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Thanks. Today on the lab report, Dr. Joe Pizzorno. Wow, talk about a legend. I'm a little starstruck. I'm I hope I can keep it together. I'm nervous. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. My arms are shaking. <laughs> My All quads are aching. Aching and shaking. <laughs> exercise will kill you. <laughs> Hello. Hey, Michael Chapman. Hi, Patty Devers. How are you? I'm doing great, except for being really sore from exercising. Understandable. <laughs> this is this going to be the last time we do this? Yes. Okay. Welcome to the lab report. Welcome everyone to this podcast brought to you by Genova Diagnostics, where we talk about things like functional medicine and specialty lab testing, integrative therapeutics, and how to exercise appropriately. <laughs> we should really pay attention more to these KOLs we speak to. But if you're new to the show, welcome. And if you're just returning, welcome back. Yay. We hope you went to iTunes or Spotify and subscribe to the show. Maybe rate, review, leave us some feedback there. Those things help. Those they things do. really help our mm-hmm. morale. You know, sometimes you're having a bad day. And then you just go back and you read one of these reviews and you're right? like, that's awesome. It's so true. Hey, thanks. Thanks out there. And it helps like our, you know, our search engine optimization or whatever that is, you know, but, uh, yeah. but really it's for our morale and we appreciate <laughs> it. And if you have additional feedback, you can always send that to podcast at gdx.net. Mm-hmm. That is the email address. Hence the at sign. That's what those yeah. indicate. Look at you. I know. I'm a whiz. <laughs> well, I know we're both somewhat nervous today because we're speaking to a legend with a lot of gravitas. Yeah. Dr. Joseph Pizzorno. When it comes to gravitas, Mm -hmm. I mean, especially in the naturopathic community, I don't think it gets any more gravitasian. Michael, is that word in the dictionary? It is. Oliver, look it it up. It is now. Look it up. Dr. Pizzorno is one of those men who's actually responsible for naturopathy even still being around. Uh, Yeah, he's played a huge role in the resurrection of this profession when we're Mm. at our most dire moment. Um, and he goes and talks about that story a little bit and uh, how how we kind of arrived there and dug our way out. And uh, he was there all along. I mean, he founded Bastyr University, yeah. so it's pretty incredible. Well, additionally, his textbook is kind of the Bible that helped me when I came here to Genova to really so? understand functional medicine. Is that so? Yeah. Interesting. Very grateful to him. Yeah. Well, I mean, and we could go on for hours <laughs> probably could. with his act. <laughs> You know, just celebrating Joe Pizzorno. His legacy, yeah. Let's, uh, instead, let's talk to him about his legacy. Call him up. Oh, that's brilliant. So, Patty. What? Today we have on Dr. Pizzorno. Oh, I know. know The legend, yeah. Dr. Joe Pizzorno is a transformational leader in medicine. As founding president of Bastyr University in 1978, he coined the term science-based natural medicine, which set the foundation for Bastyr to become the first accredited institution in this field anywhere in the world. This validated that medicine, which promotes health rather than primarily disease treatment, could be credibly taught, researched, and practiced. As co-author of the textbook of natural medicine, he helped establish the scientific foundation for health promotion medicine. With over 100,000 copies sold in four languages, over half to MDs, it not only helped reestablish naturopathic medicine, 
as an important part of the healthcare system, but also provided the scientific foundation for the transformational fields of integrative and functional medicine throughout the world. A naturopathic physician licensed in Washington State, educator, researcher, and expert spokesman, he is editor-in-chief of PubMed Index IMCJ, board chair of the Institute for Functional Medicine, founding board member of American Herbal Pharmacopeia, and a member of the science boards of the Heck Foundation, Gateway for Cancer Research, and Bioclinic Naturals. He was appointed by Presidents Clinton and Bush to two prestigious government commissions to advise the President and Congress how to integrate natural medicine into the healthcare system. And he is author or co-author of six textbooks for doctors, most recently the Clinical Environmental Medicine, and seven consumer books, including the Encyclopedia of Natural Medicine, and most recent, The Toxin Solution. And with that, thank you so Welcome, much, Dr. Pizzorno. Dr. Pizzorno. Well, thank you for the kind introduction and uh, the opportunity to chat with you today. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Pizzorno, we are honored to have you here. You have such a tremendous legacy, not only as a pioneer for naturopathic medicine, but also as a spokesperson for the entire field of integrative medicine. What, what has it been like to watch naturopathic and integrative medicine evolve from its early beginnings? You know, that's a really, really good question because you know, I've been involved now in medicine for literally over half a century. Wow. I started working in conventional medicine research way back in June 1970. Wow. So it's been a long time. <laughs> so I've had a chance to kind of watch how things have changed over time. And I have to admit that we've been more successful than I expected. Way, way, way back in the early 70s, when I first learned about naturopathic medicine and then became a naturopathic doctor, it was pretty grim for this whole field. Mm. Just, there was just not much support for it at all. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, I started last year just to keep it alive. Because at that point, as you may know, there was only one school of naturopathic medicine left in all of North America. I mean, the hmm. MA had won. Wow. They basically destroyed the profession, delicensed most of the states, got rid yeah. of most of the schools. But they couldn't quite kill us. <laughs> because <laughs> because I'll, I'll quote Dr. Bastier. Um, I, I'll, I'll tell you where this quote came from. So way back in 1973, I was a third-year student, and we were going on a herbal walk with Dr. Bastier up in the foothills of Mount, Mount Rainier. And it was such a kind of a miraculous time because we were working Dr. Ba walking with Dr. Bastier, and he'd show us these various herbals, what they looked at like the environment, talked about how to harvest them, then talk mm -hmm. about patients he'd use them for successfully. It was just wonderful. Mm -hmm. But three days before that herbal walk with Dr. Bastier, the Supreme Court of the state of Washington had decided the naturopathic doctors did not have the right to diagnose or treat disease. Hmm. And so I said to Dr. Bastier, I said, is there a future for this medicine? And what he said was, no matter the obstacles they place, the truth of our medicine will out. So wow. kind of paraphrased uh, Shakespeare. Wow. So it's the truth of the medicine. And they couldn't quite stop us because the foundations of what we teach, what we practice, is true healing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's profound. And it's just amazing how it has spread, not only within our own naturopathic community, but through uh, so through the conventional community and how many conventional doctors have now taken up, whether it's through integrative or what's called functional medicine, they've taken up a lot of these, at least some of the ideas and some of the therapies that we talk about uh, from traditional naturopathic medicine. Yes. Yeah. Yes. We realize that, you know, virtually all the MDs, are in medicine because they want to help people. Yeah. And, you know, and there are many areas where conventional medicine as it is right now 
is is great, <laughs> miraculous, yeah. no question about it. But when you start getting into the day-to-day issues of health, how you mm-hmm. get people back from chronic disease, how you prevent chronic disease, you start realizing pretty quickly that the conventional model is is very, very limited. And mm-hmm. where they're most limited is where we're the strongest. So more and more MDs are realizing that they've got to learn after they got out of medical school. As a matter of fact, you have to unlearn a lot of things to learn in yep. medical schools because they were they were mistaught in the areas of nutrition. That's right. That's me. Well, are you optim- <laughs> are, are you optimistic that it will continue to see more acceptance from the conventional medicine collective? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you look at the growth of integrated medicine, functional medicine, um, and even um, talking to more and more MDs who are starting to question this. Mm-hmm. It, it's very clear. The, the medical doctors, a big chunk of them are coming our direction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, shifting gears a little bit and talking about everything that you've achieved. I mean, it's just amazing the tremendous amount of things, the tremendous work that you've accomplished. Uh, did you ever expect to be where you are right now <laughs> and having done all this with your life? Well, no, because, you know, I was kind of looking at one problem after another. It had to be fixed. Like we had to get a credit education. We had to do research. We needed a modern textbook. You know, when I was in naturopathic medical school in the early 70s, the most modern textbook in naturopathic medicine at that time had been written in the year I was born. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was, it was like almost 30 years of no new textbooks. So um, I just basically wanted to keep it alive. I did not realize how, how, how much success there would be. But also realize I've been at it now for over 50 years. Mm-hmm. So kind of doing kind of one thing at a time. Uh-huh. When I look back and say, oh, wow. Seven books for consumers and six textbooks <laughs> for doctors, and it kind of adds up. Right. Yeah. Well, that long list of accomplishments, which of those do you think you're most proud of, kind yeah. of as a legacy? You know, thank you for warning me you're going to ask me that question, because <laughs> I, I hadn't, hadn't thought about it. And the two that come to mind, um, one may be kind of obvious, the other may be not so obvious. And that is, uh, number one was showing that there's a scientific foundation for this medicine. Mm-hmm. You know, up until we wrote the textbook of natural medicine, and the first edition had a uh, thousand pages and ten thousand references. Okay, wow. until then, there had been no systematic documentation of efficacy of natural medicine. Yeah. So that 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 fundamentally changed the game because all the naysayers were were well, you're not scientific. Conventional oh, yeah. medicine is scientific with capital S, and if conventional medicine is not doing it well, obviously it's not scientific. Well, we were able to show that that was not true, that there was plenty of science. Right. And that's, of course, why we got credited. Right. The other part, and this, this is kind of dawning on me now, new, newly dawning on me, is I'm really pleased with the nurturing I've done for the future leaders in this field. Hmm. So many of the people who are my students, and something I started doing a few years ago, I want to thank uh, past president of Bastyr, Mac Powell. Uh, he had... He had encouraged me to start doing student leadership dinners in our home mm-hmm. about six years ago. So my wife, Laura, and I have been providing these dinners for students and talking talking to them about, you know, where is our medicine strong? Where is it weak? What has to change for us to become more important part of the healthcare system? And how can you be a part of that? Wow. And now I see so many of the students who are going through this process now in leadership positions, not just in naturopathic medicine, but in other, in the other supporting, or uh, might say compatible fields as well. Yeah. 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 Just planting all of these seeds and watching them grow. It's got to be rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yes. And I, I would certainly I'd count myself as part of that. And I can't say thank you enough to the, the leadership and guidance that you provided me just through education and, and just by everything that you've accomplished. So, um, well, thank you. yeah, you, you recently published the fifth edition of the, the book textbook of natural medicine, which is a treasure trove of information, as you were describing, even if it's with its first edition and now it's to the fifth edition. Um, how do you know when it's time to do? I was just wondering this. How do you know when it's time to do a new edition? Is it based on periodicity, or is it sort of like okay, it's 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 now's the right time because this piece of information came out, or what is it? There are three key factors. <clears throat> Number one is uh, if I had my druthers, I would update it every year. Yeah, because that's how fast the research yep. is coming out. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a hundred studies a month just on vitamin D. Okay, right, right. so um, lot, there's just lots to be done. But there were two big limitations. Number one is time. Right. So basically, every update is about two years of work. This Mm -hmm. is not easy. We have over 100 authors. And this latest edition is in two volumes, uh, almost 2,500 pages, full-color graphics, and about 20,000 references. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of work. (laughs) And the third limitation is publishers. Uh, The whole publishing industry seems to become less financially viable. I think it's because some big publisher publishers ate everybody else. Anyway, so the publishers aren't as willing to do uh, new textbooks, nor is it willing to republish them. So realistically, we're at about a seven-year cycle. Mm-hmm. And that's that's slower than I, what I would like. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's the reality of the world we're in right now. Interesting. Yeah, Interesting. yeah. It's an amazing textbook. We have it on our shelves here in Medical Affairs. And several of us <laughs> well, on the you. team have contributed um, to the latest edition. So we're honored to be included. Um, but if we can get into just a couple of clinical questions, you recently wrote a book Please. called The Toxin Solution. And part of our training and focus as integrative practitioners is in toxic exposure and detox. But what inspired you to zoom in on environmental medicine in the recent years? Um, another great question. So obviously, as an naturopathic doctor, I've always been aware of the role of toxins uh, for the public. Um, but something changed. So way back when I was practicing uh, in the late 70s, I would see patients coming in where their toxicity would be you know, cigarette smoking and working in some kind of industrial situation. Or my first two patients with uh, leukemia were working as farmers, okay, wow. you spray these toxic pesticides. So I was always kind of aware of it. But I didn't realize how significant it was until about 10 years ago, I was working on a corporate wellness program in Canada. So, so one of the wealthiest men in Canada, self, self-made millionaire, asked me to develop a wellness program for his employees. Mm-hmm. So he had 4,500 oil field workers. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, fine, I'm, you know, I'm willing to do that, but you know, I want to be objective about this. So uh, I want to measure people for toxic load, I want to measure nutritional status, Want to measure physiological function, you know, HBA, A1C, homocysteine, you know, the obvious kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, how much can I spend? And he said, blank check. If I, if I could convince him it was a worthwhile test to run, he would pay for it out of his pocket. Hmm. So I did about $1,500 of lab tests on 4,500 oil field workers. Wow. wow. Okay. <laughs> now you might say, well, wait a minute, oil field workers, you know, right. oil industry, toxic exposure. Uh-huh. No. These are basically, these are guys who in the morning get up and pick up truck, drive out to Prairie in Alberta, and they check to make sure that the uh, pumps are working properly. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're not being exposed to anything other huh. than what other people are exposed to. Okay. So anyway, I found all this toxicity. Mm-hmm. I said, wow, this is surprising. 
and I found a lot of unrecognized diabetes. Hmm. So I started looking at, well, boy, there's more diabetes here than when I was in medical school, because when I was in Nature Medical School half a century ago, diabetes affected um, a little over half a percent of the population. Mm-hmm. And I was saying, wait, I'm seeing way more diabetes. Then I started looking at the data and saying, hmm, diabetes has already been, and this is 10 years ago, mm-hmm. has already been diagnosed in 7%, 7% of the population. And nowadays they're saying there's going to be one third of people are going to get diabetes in their lifetime. Wow. Yeah. What, what happened? So, um, you know, I knew that genetics didn't change. And so then I started looking at the causes for it. And one, of course, is I looked at sugar because I thought immediately that must be what it is. And mm-hmm. the reality is the sugar uh, excess consumption, which is real, it started way before the diabetes epidemic. Mm-hmm. Then I started looking at things, well, how about environmental toxins? Because I've seen all these environmental toxins in these people in Alberta that I was studying. And I was saying, oh, that's interesting. People in the top 10% of body load of organochlorine pesticides have over a 12-fold increased risk for diabetes. Mm. I thought, well, that's that's wow. interesting. Yeah. Then I started looking at toxin after toxin and realized, wow, it looks like the whole diabetes epidemic, or at least 90% of it, is due to environmental toxins. Hmm. Now, you may be saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. Everybody knows obese people get way more diabetes. Right. And it's true, obese people do get way more diabetes. But if you differentiate people who are obese according to their toxic load, those in the bottom 20, 20% of bi-load of environmental toxins have no increased risk for diabetes. Interesting. Hmm. I just say, we, everybody knows obesity causes diabetes, but if the fat is not full of toxins, they don't get the diabetes. Wow. So, well, that's interesting. So as I started looking at chronic disease after chronic disease, I was finding that the primary driver turns out to be environmental metals and chemicals. Wow. So that arrived, okay, time to tell people about this. <laughs> so, I, so I wrote my book, The Toxin Solution. And, I, and, I, and it's a little different than most books on detoxification. And as I first off, of course, said, yeah, here's all the disease due to environmental toxins. But then I say, but before you go on a detox program, you must open up your organs of elimination. Mm-hmm. So this old naturopathic concept called the monkeys, okay? Yep. How does the body get rid of toxins? And so I say, so you got to get your, your gut working properly, got to get your liver working properly, got to get your kidneys working properly. Then once your organs your detox are functioning properly, now we can go on the detox program. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, it's so funny because uh, if you don't know, so Patty was an internist in the hospital for, for many, many years. And then she came here to Genova and worked with a bunch of naturopaths. So wow. she's had to experience us uh, bending her ear and talking about the emunctories for. <laughs> I, actually, <laughs> I actually said, Great. what in the world is an emunctory? <laughs> so, yeah. so, I yeah, learned absolutely. quickly. Absolutely. Well, when you think about everything that we're exposed to on a regular basis, I mean, it can become really daunting. Like what are, what are some helpful takeaways to help protect ourselves from exposure and the negative impacts? Like what are what are some of the key exposure windows that we can try to avoid as much as possible? Yeah, another good question as well. So um, obviously we started looking at this and looking at the uh, toxins in the environment. There are about, about 100 uh, metals, metalloids, and chemicals in the environment at high enough levels to be causing human disease. Mm-hmm. So you say, okay, you can't deal with all 100, so you have to deal with the most important ones. And some of the things I've found have been just shocking. So let's look at lead. Not everybody knows lead's bad for us. Mm-hmm. And everybody knows that, wow, we did a great job uh, way back in the 70s deciding 
let's stop putting lead into gasoline, stop putting into our paint, you know, stop putting into lipstick, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so people's buy load of lead has dropped hugely, about 80% in the last almost 50 years. Okay, mm-hmm. good public health effort. Mm-hmm. But remember, people who are now older people, anybody over the age of 50, they built their bones when the environment was full of oh, lead. Yeah. Right. So now what happens when people go through andropause and menopause? They start losing bone. And as they lose bone, they release that lead into the environment. So study just came out a couple of years ago where they then looked at, well, can we correlate lead levels with uh, all-cause mortality and death from cardiovascular disease? And can, and can we go further to determine what percent of cardiovascular death is due to, and all-cause mortality is due to lead. And these researchers showed that 18% of all-cause mortality is due to lead, hmm. and one-third of all cardiac mortality is due to lead. Wow. Well, I thought, wow, that's interesting. Right. Then the next one I saw that was fascinating was arsenic. Most people don't think about arsenic as you know a, a problem. Well, it turns out that this is based on a study that was done in, in Italy. It was one of these studies I really like because it was a 20-year, 20 20,000-person 20, prospective study. So it's not, you know, looking at where people are now and kind of going backwards. It's mm-hmm. that, it's that, let's look at where people are. Let's follow them over time. Mm-hmm. And they found that arsenic was a substantial cause of stroke, cancer, diabetes, et cetera. And they determined the threshold for how much arsenic has to be in a person before it started getting a bunch of disease. Mm-hmm. And and if you then look at the number they came up with and then look at the level of arsenic in humans in the United States, it turns out 35% of humans in the United States have arsenic. Mm-hmm. So right there, two toxins, lead and arsenic, which everybody kind of knew are bad, but didn't realize how common the problem they are. It turns out um, they are a major cause of death and disease. So I think we should be standard, changing the standard of care. You go into a doctor's office and you, you know, do CBC and check your cholesterol. Right. You know something? Check their lead and arsenic because yeah. it's more important than any other thing you're measuring right now. Wow, that's interesting. Wow. And I'll, I'll say that, um, you know, on our nutritional testing, we do lead and arsenic. And it's very, very common to see elevations in lead in people who are of age where they might be suffering from things like bone, uh, loss. bone loss, osteopenia, yeah. osteoporosis. Yeah. We see it all the time. So I completely agree from an empiric standpoint. I've seen yeah, that. we see it. I'd I, I love to work with you on a, on a study. I'd like to publish a study in IMCJ showing exactly that. That would it would great. be great to look at your data sets and do a correlation between age and um, and the, the blood test you'll find, find with lead. Mm-hmm. And let's see what you've got. Let's publish that. Yeah, that sounds, sounds great. great. That sounds, sounds great. Well, it's, it's incredibly depressing to think about, right? <laughs> yeah. So how yeah, do you is. keep people from becoming overwhelmed by this toxin anxiety and being fearful to live in their world in an increasingly toxic world? That is a very good question because I actually <clears throat> experienced that challenge myself. And that is, <laughs> it's easy to get paranoid. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, but, but it's for good reason because these toxins are causing a lot of disease. And and what makes it even worse is, remember, these toxins are not uh, occurring in a void. They're occurring in a population with multiple nutritional deficiencies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Many people are not only below 100% of the RDI, Many people are below fifty percent of the RDI. Hmm. So once you once you're nutrient deficient, your sensitivity and susceptibility to damage from the toxins goes up dramatically. Yeah, hmm. yeah, and and those toxins are or those nutrients are so key in in 
helping to the, the body to process these toxins to, you know, deal with our phase one, phase two detox and things like that. So, yeah. Um, switching gears a little bit, you've also recently spent a lot of time researching and analyzing COVID-19 from an integrative perspective. Uh, you recently co-authored an article titled Evidence Supporting a Phase Immunophysiologic Approach to COVID-19 from Prevention Through Recovery. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what, what type of, how much work kind of really went into that incredibly thorough article? It's really great. Well, thank you. So there, as you know, there were four of us on there, uh, doctors, uh, Sam Yannick, uh, Cara Fitzgerald, and Helen Messier. Mm-hmm. So we've got ND, ND, DC, MD. Okay, so nice, <laughs> nice balance. All covered. <laughs> so we each kind of looked at different areas, and we kind of we dug into it, and it became very clear to us that number one is natural medicines have a huge role to play at every phase of the the COVID, the, the SARS-CoV-2 infection, mm-hmm. prevention, infection, cytokine storm, and recovery. But it was also very clear that what may be appropriate intervention, natural medicine intervention at one stage, is actually contraindicated at another stage. Hmm. So we try to try to go through and look at which natural therapies you use for each stage, and then and which ones should you not use. Then kind of what are the differentiations to help you figure out where you are and what to do about it. Yeah, it's really it's really great. I love how you break down those different phases, like you yeah. said, prevention, infection, inflammation, and recovering. And you also you map these five targets of support across of each of the the four phases. And uh, you know some of those are things like support natural killer cells, support Th1 cells. Um, from the standpoint of prevention, what are some things that we can all be doing uh, to just lower our risk of severe or more severe complications from the infection? So the, the good news is that there's actually a lot we can do, and in my in my doing my part of the uh, of this article, uh, I dug into research that actually led me to create for the first time a lecture called "Thoughts on a Unified Theory of Disease" hmm. that I presented at the IFM annual conference uh, in May yes. last year. Yeah. Okay. So and so out of that research came came the following observations. So my job at that point, one of my one of my responsibilities um, for the paper was look at vitamin D and, uh, and the COVID infections, uh, and, and of course it's very clear as the vitamin D levels go down, the COVID infections increase, and the severity and the complications increase, and ICU visits increase in direct proportion to the efficiencies of vitamin D. That's very clear. Hmm. The other one was a little surprising. Uh, at that time, it looked like, and I think it's true now, that the uh, hydroxychloroquine is effective at the early stages of the infection and not effective at the late stages. As a matter of fact, maybe contraindicated at the late stages. Mm-hmm. And the thought was the reason it was effective at the early stages was that the hydroxychloroquine was working as a zinc ionophore, getting zinc into the white blood cells, mm-hmm. in, into the immune cells, okay? Mm-hmm. And so um, we were saying, well, are there natural therapies that will do that? And I started looking for that and discovered that indeed, there are a bunch of bioflavonoids and, and some carotenoids that actually uh, are zinc ionophores, get zinc into the cells. And by the way, you are, you're lab folks. Mm-hmm. I am hypothesizing that the reason there's such a poor correlation between serum zinc and white cell zinc is due to the lack of zinc ionophores. Mm-hmm. And I would bet you if you looked at the bioflavonoid levels in the serum and the zinc levels, you can correlate what's going to be the zinc levels in the white yeah. cells. Interesting. Wow. And I would love to see you do that. So another, another research <laughs> idea for you, for you folks. We got, we got I'm, writing it, I'm writing it down. Yeah. Okay, we got less to do. I, I think that could be really good. But it also makes me think now that zinc, um, 
uh, white cell zinc is actually way, way better than I thought it was. Okay, so let me go back again. <laughs> so anyway, so I was looking at all these flavonoids um, being good for uh, zinc, for, for getting zinc into cells. And as I was doing this, I ran across this really interesting uh, study. It was a uh, supercomputer modeling study. So this is where they used typical drug discovery. They were looking at, trying to determine what molecules will bind to the SARS-CoV-2 spikes to make it less infectious. And they looked at 2,000 molecules. And turns out that of the top five most effective at binding to SARS-CoV-2, at least in terms of the uh, computer modeling, one was a carotenoid and one was a flavonoid. Hmm. I thought, well, that's interesting. Hmm. So I looked at these carotenoids and flavonoids and realized, number one is they get zinc into cells. And number two, there's actually a laboratory in some limited clinical studies showing that they're antiviral. Hmm. And I said, well, that's interesting. So what foods hmm. are these things in? And I found that they're and I, I was looking at what foods there, and I ran across a study that compared the flavonoid content of chemically grown foods versus organically grown foods. I'm no longer saying mm. conventionally grown foods versus organically grown foods. I'm saying chemically grown foods. <laughs> wow. And what was interesting is that many of these uh, flavonoids and carotenoids were not only lower in chemically grown foods, many of them weren't there at all. Wow. And then this idea occurred to me. Could it be that as we evolved as a species – we actually had three ways to protect ourselves from infection, not just two. So right now we think about the, our uh, physical membranes, mucous membranes, skin, and things like that, mm -hmm. which play, as you know, play a huge role in just keeping the stuff out of our body. And once those things get into the body, virus, bacteria, whatever, then we have the two phases of the immune system, the innate immune system, which acts right away, and then of course the humoral antibody system, which takes longer to activate, but it's way stronger. Mm -hmm. What if between getting into the body and activation of the immune system were, were a bunch of flavonoids in our body that bound to the, the viruses to keep them from replicating. Fascinating. Hmm. Now, they're not, totally gonna, not always going to get the rid of them totally, but what if they give the immune system an extra day right. to rev right. up? Right. Think about the huge advantage. So right. I started thinking, oh, that's interesting. So we've lost these molecules from our food supply. We're seeing more and more frequently frequent epidemics and pandemics. And sure, people are traveling more, but it could also be that their immune systems are more depleted, not just because of nutrient deficiencies that we know about, like vitamin D and C and zinc, things like that, but from the deficiency of molecules we've decided, uh, our scientists have decided were not important. Mm. Hmm. So... I'm thinking about writing an article on the unimportant molecules. <laughs> so, for, so, so, so we've decided that there's only like 50, you know, maybe 100 molecules in food that are important, you know, vitamins, minerals, amino acids, and right, such. Right. There are 50,000 of these molecules in foods. Yeah. So we've thrown away 99.9% .9 of the stuff that's in food, decided it wasn't important. Yeah. That was a big mistake. Yeah. 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 I mean, in the face of, of COVID in this pandemic, it's I mean, it's reassuring, right, to know that there is something a patient can do to kind of stave some of this off. It's nutrition. It's avoiding toxins. It's all of this stuff that you've pioneered here in natural medicine. Yeah, exactly. I was just going to say, like, so much of it is, you know, the foundations of health is what we kind of get back to. And uh, yes. That's uh, yeah. I just can't thank you enough yeah. for the work that you've done over these years. So and so when we, we we hear all of these things, Dr. Pizzorno, and we've seen your career, you know, classic underachiever there. Um, what can we <laughs> expect next? Like, what are you working on, and what can we expect to see soon? So theoretically, I'm at the retirement age. I should be <laughs> pretty far past it. But realistically, I'm at a point in my life now where 
yeah, I've been doing this for so long. Mm -hmm. I've read so much research. I've seen so much patient activity. I talked to a lot of doctors. I'm developing deeper and deeper understanding of, of medicine. Mm -hmm. So my job right now is to continue to be like a transformer. My job is look at all this research, see what makes sense, and then pass it on to other people. Yeah. So I'll, I'll continue doing that. But I think my next one is I want to reflesh up my ideas on the neophyte theory of disease. Yeah. It, it's pretty clear to me why people are sick. And it's pretty clear now what to do about it. So that's, that has to be developed much much more completely. Yeah. Awesome. And that was a, a brilliant lecture that you gave. And I uh, can't wait to see more of it. So um, thank you so much. And, um, you know, I think the only other thing is a little bit of a surprise question that I have at the end of the day. Do you have a favorite vegetable, Dr. Pizzorno? A favorite vegetable? Well, I have a favorite fruit, and that's blueberries. Okay. I have uh, okay. a dozen blueberry plants that I've been growing organically now for over 30 years. Cool. So they're probably the best blueberries you'll plant anywhere in the planet. Cool. Um, but in terms of a vegetable I like best... Wow. Hey, Laura, <laughs> what vegetable do you think I like best? Nachos. The nachos is not a vegetable. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm being Peppers. Peppers. You like oh, yeah. Peppers. That's going spicy peppers. Oh, yes. nice. Excellent. Yes. Nice. <laughs> I, I just, um, I'm growing more and more of our, of our own food. And, um, I just grew some new uh, peppers that are the best peppers I've ever had. So hmm. I'm, I'm having a lot of fun experimenting with different kinds of pepper plants. I love peppers. Well, we could put the peppers on the nachos. So it kind of all comes <laughs> yes, together. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Pizzorno, this has been an amazing time that you've spent with us. We are so honored. And we're going to encourage everyone to check out all these books, including your textbook of natural medicine, which is a Bible and a staple for anyone in this field. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, we will we'll definitely be in touch and follow up with uh, some of these awesome things that you suggested so well thank you for the very kind uh, interview and uh, and again for the work you're doing yes. this medicine has so much potential to to help people regain their health and we have to do everything we can to advance that agreed agreed yeah it was great meeting you dr pizzorno thank you so much i look forward to meeting you in person man that was a lot of fun yeah I would encourage people to go uh, look at some of the resources that we talked about, like the uh, COVID-19 paper that was published, um, and certainly the textbook of natural medicine and even his most recent book. So, um, yeah, th what, what a fun conversation. Why were we so nervous to talk to him? He's very calming and just so open and sweet. That's true. Why were we nervous? I'm always nervous. <laughs> That's true. I, I walk around nervous. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm even nervous when I'm sleeping. That what? doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. Well, what are we doing next time, Michael? Next time on The Lab Report, Dr. Nicole Avina. Yeah, she's a neuroscientist who specializes in sugar addiction. What, are you staging some sort of intervention? What? No. Who, me? No. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. Speaking of hot peppers. Yeah. Have uh -huh. you ever seen that I show on, on YouTube where they eat the hot sauces, hot wings? 
Hot Ones. Yeah. Yeah. It's I love a, that show. I know. It's fantastic. What a great premise. You like get somebody's <laughs> in their total yeah. discomfort zone and then ask them a question. It's brilliant. Why don't we do that? Oh. I'm going to challenge you to this. Oh, that sounds like, uh, <laughs> that sounds pretty dangerous, but I'm totally up for it. We should do a podcast eating escalating hot wings. All right. I'm down. All right.